if you're even considering that there might be an eating disorder going on, to me, that indicates it's highly likely that there's something happening that, that is worth getting checked out. I learned about eating disorders in a high school health class. There is anorexia and bulimia, but I could recognize myself in those because I was larger and had such terrible body image and self-esteem issues that it didn't really apply to me. It wasn't until I was towards the end of university and so psychologically unwell and physically unwell at that stage that I actually went, no, no, I, I really am sick and, and I can say, I think I have an eating disorder. We sort of looked at it as being, well, she's trying to be healthy. We sort of understand that. And again, we, we didn't worry too much about it. Again, hindsight's a wonderful thing. When you look back, you can, you can sort of see the early signs. It's one of the most basic questions that people ask. How do you know if it's an eating disorder? And that's a pretty good question. So we're going to answer it. This is Butterfly Let's Talk from your friends at Butterfly, Australia's national voice for body image issues and eating disorders. And this is the first episode of our third season. And I'm really glad that you're here for this. I think the main word to think about here is how much change is going on from how the person was beforehand. So you're looking at changes across sort of behavioural, physical and psychological areas. So let's go through what we already know. Eating disorders are serious mental illnesses. People who suffer from them experience extreme emotions about food, eating, or their body, sometimes all at once, and these emotions often lead to extreme behaviours. There are different types of eating disorders with different symptoms, but they're all similarly driven by mental health issues. For someone who's not an expert, they can be really difficult to diagnose. Experts usually look at three areas when they want to see if somebody has an eating disorder. Those are behavioural changes, psychological conditions, and physical changes. And so what does that all mean in practice? Well, let's go ask an expert. My name is Dr. Simon Wilkes. I am a clinical psychologist and clinic director of an eating disorder treatment service in Adelaide. I also have a research role at Flinders University where I conduct research looking at how we can prevent or reduce the risk of eating disorders, both in schools and online as well. How do you know if something's an eating disorder or if you're just, you know, very keen on nutrition? One of the key features is how much is the person's self-worth determined by their control over food and their weight and how they look, basically. So if that has come to be a really important part of their life, that's to me what kind of pushes this into more eating disorder territory rather than just some changes to food and exercise behaviours. As a society, I think our understanding of what an eating disorder is and what it looks like is starting to evolve and change because we're starting to realize that it's not just bulimia and anorexia. You know, Correct. you've got yeah. all of these other, and, and in fact, binge eating disorder, from what I understand, is far more prevalent than some of the other diagnoses that are out there. Mm. Um, what are the known risks? Like what puts somebody at risk of an eating disorder? And I guess in a lot of cases, it might not be what you think. This is one of the interesting parts of the field. There's been over 30 different risk factors found for eating disorders in terms of trying to prevent eating disorders. It's working out what risk factors do you target. And there are some that fall under, you know, the kind of genetic area, family history of anxiety, depression, 
eating disorder symptoms. That that's a risk factor. There's more temperament or personality risk factors. So low self-esteem, impulsivity, anxiety, those kind of things. There's what we call socio-cultural risk factors. So having a lot of exposure to media content, social media now is increasingly being found to be associated with disordered eating, having experiences with being bullied about appearance. Perfectionism as well is a really common sort of temperament that you see in someone who will go on to develop these problems. So I guess one of the challenges here is there's no one neat definite risk factor that that causes this. It's a whole raft of different things. In terms of behavioural changes, we'd be looking at, you know, is there restriction around food? Is there cutting certain foods out, counting calories, avoiding eating after certain times? Sometimes there can be binge eating. But I think something that really is key here is the level of rigidity around the behaviours that is going on. If someone is starting to exercise a lot more, but they, for whatever reason, they've got something that interferes with when they'd normally exercise, if that really bothers them, causes a lot of distress and so on, it's pushing us more down the path that this might be of clinical concern. This might actually be really occupying a lot of their life. I remember from a really young age, like some of my earliest memories being about being really, really dissatisfied with how my body looked. And over my childhood, that sort of solidified until when I was towards the end of primary school, I was completely sure that I was, you know, um, a hideous kind of bog monster thing. And I started partaking in behaviours that I thought would solve that. Hi, my name's Jane, and I have a lived experience with an eating disorder. How did the eating disorder begin? What are your earliest memories of it? I had a pretty turbulent childhood, and I had a lot of adverse childhood experiences, which included a lot of negative focus from adults in my life about my body and how I looked and that sort of thing. I started restricting from when I was in the end of primary school. And by the time I was sort of towards the middle of high school, had a fully fledged restrictive eating disorder. And that lasted for well over 10 years. Did you know you had an eating disorder at the time? No. As a little child, I had no idea that this, you know, would have a name or anything like that. I think I learned about eating disorders in a high school health class. At the time, that was that there is anorexia and bulimia and not what I now know is a big spectrum of different behaviours and experiences. But I could recognise myself in those And I was still in the mindset, though, that I was, you know, ugly and gross and that even though I could recognize myself in those descriptions, that because I was larger and had such terrible body image and self-esteem issues that it didn't really apply to me. Unfortunately, one of the key features of an eating disorder is that the person who has the eating disorder does not often see it as a serious problem. They often sort of feel like, uh, no, there's other people out there where this applies much, this is much more serious for them than what it is for me. Shame and stigmatization play a massive role in the diagnosis process. When I first went to see someone more than a decade ago, my first instinct was to lie about everything because that's what I'd done for as long as I could remember. 
because I was ashamed of it. It's not uncommon for people to try to hide it. They might deny that they're struggling and go to massive lengths to try to hide their behaviours. Others might simply not be aware that there's anything wrong in the first place. This all makes the job of the carer or the health expert who's trying to make the diagnosis all the more difficult. My wife and I have been a carer of our, at the time, 14-year-old daughter, who's now 17, who was diagnosed with anorexia nervosa in mid-2020. My name is Matthew. I'm a father of four kids. Mimi is her name. She has always been a really happy and caring and sensitive girl, a little bit shy, suffered from a little bit of anxiety, but, you know, really has been a pretty easy child all the way through. The big thing that changed for her was COVID. So when COVID hit, the things that she loved the most was sport, so that stopped. And then probably the other, uh, she's quite social, so missing, um, I suppose, her social interaction uh, and then going to screens and doing it all through Zoom and Teams and all of those things, she just became very introverted and found it really challenging and became really anxious. And it was that that really triggered, as far as we can see, I'm sure there are other things that combine to it, but that was a trigger for her to, I suppose, start doing things a bit differently, which then led to her being diagnosed with anorexia. Denying that the illness exists can be a problem, but it's also a clear symptom of the disorder in the first place. It's also something that the sufferer hasn't necessarily chosen to do. It's more of a compulsion. It's part of the problem. She completely denied she had an eating disorder. She just said it was, you know, she may have taken the exercise too far. So she agreed not to not to do as much exercise when she came home. She told us that she didn't want to go back to that place, hated all of the, the hospital food and the environment and all those things. And so we thought, oh, you know, she'll be fine. It was just a little, just went off the rails a little bit. You know, there's no real deep issues here. In hindsight, we were a little bit, Again, naive, we trusted her. So we trusted her that, you know, she was eating whilst we were observing. We weren't vigilant, I suppose. So we might be there, I might take a phone call, we might look away and, you know, look back and it was finished and just assume she'd eat. Did she accept that she had a problem? No. No, She was convinced she didn't have a problem and we were overacting. She then started to be really, starting to be a bit more uh, picky about food. So started to cut out sugar, started to cut out red meat. And again, we sort of looked at it as being, well, she's trying to be healthy. We sort of understand that. And again, we, we didn't worry too much about it. Again, hindsight's a wonderful thing. When you look back, you can you can sort of see the early signs. But these were the early signs. And, and one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast is to try and help other parents or carers who maybe face the same sorts of things. Because I think if we had have picked it up early, then our journey may not have been as tortuous and, and as long. Well, I'm not a fan of cliches, but the old cliche, an ounce of prevention is better than a ton of cure, is true when it comes to all mental health conditions, especially eating disorders. Once a patient ticks off all the diagnostic criteria, the condition can be much harder to treat. Simon recommends calling the Butterfly Helpline and using online tools provided by Butterfly or the National Eating Disorder Collaboration. They're a great place to start. 
He's also a big proponent of the specially designed questionnaires that can give an indication of whether someone's likely to be experiencing an eating disorder. They're a lot like the questionnaires that your GP will ask you to fill out if you're testing for anxiety or depression. That's probably the most highly regarded tool in the field. So the use of that, even though that might seem like a bit of paperwork to someone going to see the GP, as you mentioned, Sam, that is the pathway for most people to getting a referral under an eating disorder plan, which allows someone up to 40 psychology sessions in a year and up to 20 dietetic sessions. So the benefit of that is that it's a it's a very useful tool for the health professionals to know what the symptoms look like and for you know, the GP to then refer to a psychologist or mental health clinician. The big indicators are things like extreme changes or fluctuation in weight, unexplained food intolerances, fatigue, low immunity, among other things. But they can also be behavioural, things like rigid restriction and obsessive rituals around eating or avoiding social situations that could involve food. You will see some people start to avoid socialising, trying to avoid being around situations with food. We can see changes, of course, in in sort of weight, in uh, people feeling the cold more, changes to menstrual cycle, poor sleep, a whole range of physical changes. When I was in high school, I didn't want to go and like go after school and have hot chips with my friends. That was absolutely not happening. I didn't eat in front of anyone for probably five years. I didn't date because I felt like, firstly, I was so hideous that there was no point trying. And also that it would interrupt the disease that I was like committing my life to at that point. And then when I tried to form relationships, like friendships or anything like that, make connections with people inevitably like food comes up and I had to put walls up between me and other people because because if they knew too much they might try and stop me and I felt like it was absolutely critical that I be able to do these awful things to myself. For me the hardest thing about having an eating disorder was probably not how sick it made me, although it made me incredibly sick. It was that it was like I had a secret second life that I couldn't let anyone in on. For years at a time, it feels like all I thought about and all I did was worry about food and worry about my body I knew it wasn't normal and I knew that if people knew exactly what I was doing, they'd probably get in the way of it. And so secrecy became a huge part of my life and it got in the way of relationships like with my family, with my friends, and it was really like life-destroying. We have completely different diagnoses, but... I relate to so much of what you're saying, and I think you know a lot of people listening probably will as well. Can you take us through what finally led you to get diagnosed? And was it something that you tried to avoid? I was getting treated after having just this complete psychological meltdown while I was trying to do my honours degree by my GP. And 
I started to realize that my treatment for my depression wasn't going anywhere because I was struggling to regulate my mood because I was like hungry all the time. Um, I think everyone's been hangry before and I came to this realization that my hanger was <laughs> was in the way of trying to reclaim my life from this like mental breakdown I'd had. And I went to my GP and I thought I was being so clever. I was like, I'm just wondering um, if someone had an eating disorder, like not me, but if someone had an eating disorder, could they get treatment for it? And my GP was like, we can get treatment for your eating disorder. I was like, ah, <laughs> okay. Um, but once that was like broken down for me, that barrier, and I was like talking about it suddenly, it, for me, was a lot easier once I had the words and I was able to say them out loud. I just thought it was the furthest thing that, that could happen to her. So we took her to a psychologist. They said the same thing. We then ended up taking her to a pediatrician. They then said, look, she's ridiculously malnourished. You need to take her to hospital. And we took her to hospital and they admitted her straight away. Her heart rate was really low. That was when I suppose we knew that we had an issue and we knew that there was an eating disorder. Right. But you knew that she did? Well, not really. We thought, you know, she'd been shocked out of that experience. When we came home, we thought she'd be fine because she didn't want to go back there again. She'll eat and she'll recover. That was, again, our naive thinking. Yeah. We'd see her eat and thinking that, that she was eating, but she was good at covering up. So whether it was going down the sleeves, you know, a whole range of different actions, she was able to manipulate. And then we had weekly visits back to various different um, doctors and pediatricians and she wasn't putting on any weight, so they were getting really concerned. We became obviously significantly more aware and alert to what was happening. We became much more vigilant. But as we became more vigilant, she became more determined to not eat effectively. And so this was just a couple of years ago. Yeah, it went from March 2020 through to December 21. And can I ask, how is she now? Is she any closer to being on the road to recovery? She's thriving. She's a different person. What was it? What led her to engage in the recovery process? So I think every journey is different. So every case is specific. So I don't want anyone to to think that this is a solution, but it worked for us. So I'll just share it. So we decided to just, after 18 months of constantly you know basically we didn't leave her alone for any minute of any day since you know mid 2020 basically so whether she was either in hospital or she was home with us and one of us you know my wife and myself would be with her virtually every minute of every day because we'd lost trust in her and if we weren't with her she would either be exercising or she wouldn't be eating so we would we would need to be around her and just to manage her her mental state so in this December 2021, when things were at their lowest, we decided to give her a week of independence and a bit because we were just completely exhausted, to be honest, and we thought we had to try something different. We said, well, why don't we just give her a week and see how it goes and just give her some freedom because she's completely distraught and we were completely distraught. 
Um, that week, whilst she ate minimal food, but she did eat, so that was a tick, she didn't lose enough weight that she had to go back to hospital. So we then let her do it the second week. She was saying to us she really wanted to be home for Christmas because she wasn't home for Christmas the previous one. So that gave her a bit of incentive to eat a bit more. And we said, as long as you keep eating and as long as your weight you know, doesn't, I suppose, reduce, we won't take you back to hospital. And then as each week went on, we got to Christmas, January, and it just got stronger and stronger and stronger. And now it's like a distant memory. She's playing sport. She's really happy. She's back at school. It's wow, like a different so, person. So by just taking a step back and letting her handle it herself. That's right. The good news is that once the barriers have been broken down and you've accepted the diagnosis, you can start working on getting better. Now, I'm not saying that's the easy part by any means, but if you never start, it'll never happen. In previous series, we've heard stories from people who've lived with an undiagnosed eating disorder for years or even decades, despite seeing doctors and other health experts. The good news is that the tools that are being used to help with diagnosis are getting better and better. But essentially, we at least just need to ask a few questions of people when they're presenting. And so some of the, some of the measures that have been found to be useful include items like, would you say that food dominates your life? Do you believe yourself to be fat when others say you're too thin? Do you worry you've lost control over how much you eat? And often it's a nice way to do it to just ask, you know, start off with how much sleep are you getting on a typical night? And then what are you eating when you first get up? And almost ease into it a bit more rather than jumping into those really sort of clear-cut clinical questions. I'd encourage people to have a look at the National Eating Disorder Collaboration website. Butterfly, of course, has useful content on this. So go into that appointment with your GP already armed with some information and I think that will help it to go as well as possible. Another thing that can get in the way of a diagnosis is when people don't look like they have an eating disorder, at least not in the stereotypical kind of way. Everyone has to have a relationship with food. You don't get a choice about that. Everyone on this planet has to have a relationship with food and everyone has self-image, body image, self-esteem, that kind of thing. And maybe it's something you don't think about a lot or you could be on the far end of the spectrum like I was and it's a complete obsession, but it's something we all have to do. But that's one part of it. The other part is is that as someone who is in a larger body, recovery was at times really kind of traumatic I remember I was living in a regional town at that point and my doctor couldn't find a psychologist who specialized in eating disorders that she believed would that she would trust to treat someone in a larger body and not re-traumatize me and I remember trying to get a referral to a clinic and they wouldn't accept my referral because I was not within their BMI range. They had a range of BMIs that they would accept, which meant that people who were too large or too small couldn't get treatment from this clinic. And moments like that were absolutely devastating. And going from feeling like I couldn't have this disorder because of how I looked 
to, again, the complete opposite of having to advocate for myself and go, no, no, I, I really am very sick on the same exact issue, on the issue of how my body looks, was so bizarre. And these were weeks apart. Yeah. That was awful. That sounds like it would have been a horrendous experience. Yeah, it was it was like the only word I can say for it is traumatic. Yeah. We know that that having an eating disorder and any kind of eating disorder or disordered eating when you're in a larger body is dangerous and can be life-threatening. It doesn't matter if you're in that that group of people that's maybe what you imagine when you first think of someone who has a serious eating disorder. No, it's dangerous for anyone who has one. I couldn't access treatment. It was horrible. And this is only a few years ago. The system has got a long way to go, even though we, you know, in terms of treatment and acceptance, we seem to have come a long way. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I do. Absolutely. Something that came up at an event I went to recently was that the sort of less complex mental health conditions like mild to moderate depression and anxiety are really, really accepted now. I don't think that it's difficult to say I have, you know, mild to moderately severe of either of those conditions. When you start talking about severe um, depression or anxiety or more complex mental health conditions like eating disorders or I also have PTSD and depression where more back like we were 10 or 15 years ago talking about anxiety and depression which is is shit I would I would like we would like to be able to talk about these, which are at their core just medical conditions, without having to worry about shame and stigma. Things like starting a strict diet or an exercise routine can be risk factors, but they don't necessarily mean that somebody has an eating disorder. So let's turn it around. How do we know if it's not an eating disorder? How do we know that our friend or loved one is just on a diet or counting calories, say, for health reasons? According to Simon, it comes down to the level of rigidity that the person has about these behaviours and how much their actions occupy their thinking and their everyday lives. Say someone is going through a phase of being on a certain diet. If If they're kind of going through that, they're doing it for health reasons or they're doing it you know, just to improve their well-being overall, but it is not occupying all of their thinking, not having a big impact on how they feel about themselves as a person, not stopping yeah. them from living their lives normally, then then that sounds to me like less risk of an eating disorder. I would say if you're concerned at all, it's probably an indicator that there actually is something going on because I, as I said, I tend to see people really almost downplay their symptoms or feel like there's not anything important happening here. And that's that's not the case. If you're even considering that there might be an eating disorder going on, to me, that indicates it's highly likely that there's something happening that that is worth getting checked out and likely receiving some help for. We're nearly out of time for this episode, so let's throw it open to our guests. What advice would they have for someone who's unsure if they or a loved one have a problem? The only other comment I would make is that if if you have a loved one that you are concerned about, I would encourage you to to trust your gut instinct and, and gently raise this with them. Pick a good moment when, you know, they seem to be in a calmer mood and 
there's nobody else around, I'd encourage you to speak in terms of I statements rather than you statements. So that's things like I've noticed lately um, or, you know, I'm feeling really concerned that you you might be doing it a bit tough at the moment rather than you statements, which can be perceived as kind of being blamed. I'd keep in mind that no one ever chooses to develop an eating disorder. No one ever wakes up and thinks today I'm going to get sick with an eating disorder. So we need to... We need to keep that level of compassion and empathy very high. But again, if you have a concern, if you are concerned about a loved one, speak to them, speak to them sooner rather than later, offer to support them, offer to go with them to um, the GP and and let's get the process started of of getting help. My advice for someone who has an eating disorder or thinks that they might have an eating disorder is that the journey is not easy, but it is worth it. I had several relapses and they were frightening every time. They were probably more frightening than the first time I, you know, had (laughs) developed my eating disorder. But my life is awesome right now. I haven't had a relapse in years. I'm getting married soon. I've got a partner, which I, like as I said earlier, thought for years and years was absolutely out of my reach. I'm holding down a job. I'm not like sick and and depressed and malnourished. You can do it. It it is worth it. One of the first reactions you have when your child is starving themselves uh, and you become really frightened that, you know, it could lead to a permanent issue with their health or they could die, etc., then you become really frustrated and you say, you can't just see what you're doing to yourself. And and I think what we learned is that's the worst reaction because it doubles down on their self-esteem and they feel that they're not worth anything. So they have this low self-esteem. You say, why are you doing this? Don't you see what you're doing to yourself? Don't you see what you're doing to your family? That just increases yeah. the anxiety. So trying to flip that around and show them unconditional love through this journey, which at times can be really hard, but I think that's another really important component I really want people to know that recovery is the norm. Like that is what we're shooting for. When I meet a patient, that's what we're working towards. And uh, I'm yet to meet a person that I, that I didn't think could recover from an eating disorder. It is absolutely possible to, to get the help that you need and, and to be free from this. Well, I'd like to thank our expert for this episode, Dr. Simon Wilksh. I'd also like to thank Matthew and Jane for being so open and talking about stuff most of us don't really want to talk about. If you think you need support with an eating disorder or body image, the Butterfly Helpline that we mentioned in this episode, the number is 1-800-334673, or if you prefer letters, it's 1-800-ED-HOPE. For online resources, go to butterfly.org.au or nedc.com.au. That's the website for the National Eating Disorder Collaboration. Butterfly Let's Talk is an Icon Media production in partnership with Butterfly Foundation, It's produced by Camilla Beckett with lived experience support from Kate Mulray. I'm Sam Eichen, your host. My production assistant is Bronwyn Lisson. Editing and sound engineering is done by DJ extraordinaire Extraordinaire. Brendan Lenahan. And to find out more about us, you can go to eichenmedia.au. I'm Sam Eichen. Thank you so much for your company. Listener.